नमस्ते जय हिंद थैंक यू फॉर वॉचिंग और लिसनिंग टू ए एन आई पॉडकास्ट विथ स्मिता प्रकाश थैंक यू ऑल्सो फॉर राइटिंग इन एंड टेलिंग अस हु यू वुड लाइक ऑन द शो नेक्स्ट नाउ डू ऑल्सो वॉच क्विक टेक वी डूइंग दिस इट्स अ क्विक गाइड फॉर टॉपिक्स ऑफ करंट अफेयर्स फॉर एग्जाम्पल वीव डन वन ऑन कंजंक्टिवाइटिस और आई फ्लू विच इज रेजिंग थ्रू द कंट्री दीज डेज वीव ऑल्सो डन वन ऑन द डेली बिल शुड इट बी ऑफ इंटरेस्ट टू यू इफ यू डोंट लिव इन डेली और इफ यू लिव अब्रॉड Here's the link to where you can watch this show. On this podcast today, we have the youngest Indian Grammy winner. Ricky Cage is the fourth Indian to win the award. The world-renowned music composer and environmentalist that he is, it was quite natural that UNHCR would want him to be a goodwill ambassador. Ricky Cage is a three-time Grammy winner and the youngest Indian to win a Grammy. So let's meet with the effervescent Ricky Cage to know more about the man behind the music. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Should I call you Dr. Cage, Dr. Ricky Cage? Ricky, Ricky, Ka- Ricky is the best. <laughs> okay, I have your permission. So before the viewers start trolling me on calling <laughs> this eminent musician by the first name, I have his permission. <laughs> so thank you so much for being. I'm most honored. Uh, unfortunately, I can't have you performing live for me out here. <laughs> That would have been fabulous. Of course. But thank you so much for being part of. Part thank of you this so much podcast. for having me. It's an honor. All right so let me begin by asking you first off that uh, you know this instrumental version of the Indian national anthem uh, we're going to play it afterwards uh, i just want to know what it was like to get all this fabulous artists together and in the abbey studios so i've uh, actually worked with the royal philharmonic orchestra on a number of occasions in the past in fact my previous grammy award winning album also featured them I love that orchestra they're absolutely brilliant and about 3 months ago that's when I came up with this idea that why not uh, you know record the Indian national anthem with the biggest uh, with with a huge symphony orchestra so I checked with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra they really wanted to be a part of this and they said that yeah let's do let's do this together So it was an amazing experience going to Abbey Road Studios and yeah. actually conducting the orchestra and I think that the Beatles played here and Pink so Floyd much, was here so much of history in those walls from Kanye West to you know Lady Gaga I guess I think she also played there right pretty like much everybody like including everybody. Hans Zimmer John Williams Howard Shore all the greatest movie soundtracks have been recorded over there so there's a lot of music in those walls you in know and walls. to and to actually leave your mark over there is very very nice Uh, before we play the national anthem i just want to tell viewers that we have uh, vada and chutney uh, very much karnataka yes. and because uh, ricky kesh though born to uh, marwadi and a punjabi home uh, lives in bengaluru so you know he has his kannada roots <laughs> so <course>. we, <laughs> we have uh, the vada and i have towards the end we're going to have that mysore park so uh, ricky we going to play the little bit of the national anthem and uh, you can eat your uh, vada while that's happening <laughs>
what I wanted to ask was that you know you when you picked up the national anthem and when you decided to put your version, ah, uh, the it's very true to what the original is, but there are moments which are like sheer magic, which like. I one could never think. Oh, can the national anthem be improved upon? I'm not. I won't use the word improved yeah. upon, but you bring that extra new perspective. Correct. So tell me about that. Why did you think of doing that? So first of all, the national anthem is uh, like every Indian. It's a very very important uh, piece of music for me. In fact, it's even more important simply because the first piece of music that I ever learned as a child, as a really small child, was the national anthem. Before I learned any nursery rhymes or lullabies or anything like that. Oh. So it's uh, it's something that is within my blood, and I've made numerous versions of the national anthem in the past, uh, even before my professional career had started. After my professional career started, I created one version a few years ago, which was dedicated to the natural world of India. You know, dedicated to the forests and wildlife, because I wanted to showcase a perspective that the forests and wildlife are an as important part of our country as us human beings, and India is much more than just us human beings. Last year, I did another version of our national anthem, where I got refugees who are living in India. who our government has you know given them a new home and they feel so welcome over here they felt uh, very grateful to our government they felt very grateful to our country and they decided that you know uh, we want to sing the national anthem mm. you know that's what we want to do to commemorate 75 years of indian independence so i do a lot of work with them through the united nations through my role as uh, their goodwill ambassador and i basically found 12 fantastic singer refugees sang the national anthem with them and that went completely viral last year. Yeah. And uh, this year I thought that why not give the national anthem the the grandeur and the hugeness that uh, that uh, the national anthem is all about. So as you mentioned it's a beautifully composed piece of music by Rabindranath Tagore, a beautiful beautiful piece of music and uh, so for me it was all about decorating it and uh, showing it a perspective that I, it absolutely deserves or even more. Yeah, I'm going to get to the part about your uh, work for in the environment, uh, your work uh, to for the UN. I'm going to get that to that part. But before that, what struck me is what you said about how uh, national anthem is the first song that you know that was close to your heart, song or anthem or whatever you want to call it. Um, you were born, so I'm going to go back right back. Yeah, so sure. So you were not born in India. You were True. born in the in the US. How come the national Indian national anthem was was so important for you even as a child? So my father is a very patriotic Indian. Mm. <laughs> so that's all I can say. He even though he's from Churu in Rajasthan, he grew up in Myanmar, and uh, he was in Myanmar in a Marwadi community. He lived over there, and uh, he was there right up to his first year of medical college. Mm. and uh, he was also uh, in the rss during that time mm. and uh, an amazing person he really really loves our country uh, to no end and uh, uh, and he maintains that discipline even now uh, like for example when covid hit uh, he's 80 years old mm. and uh, he, uh, for 2 years he did not miss a single day of going to the hospital and during, there were days when he would see up to 100 patients a day Uh, he's a medical practitioner. He's a, I, I forgot about that. I forgot to mention that completely. He's a doctor, hmm. so he would uh, see patients uh, every single day. Sometimes even a hundred patients. Sometimes even more than a hundred patients. So that's how much he's dedicated to our country. That's how much he's dedicated to our social service. And I guess some of that has rubbed off on me. So when we were growing up in America, I was there for just six years uh, since the time I was born. And then of course, when I was six years old, we moved to India. 
so he inculcated all of these indian values in us and uh, on in my brother and me and also uh, you know he ensured that you know that the first piece of music that we learned was the indian national anthem okay so you there was the nationalism part of it and there was the music part of yeah. it that uh, that was part of the national anthem for you so um, so you moved to india really early in your life was that was that difficult because you were just 6 or 8 years old when you know you new school new friends um how important was music to blend in with india was indianness uh, something that was alien for you it wasn't actually alien for me hmm. but i believe that uh, you know that you can take an indian out of india but you cannot take the indianness out of an indian and uh, that's the case of everybody all my relatives whoever have moved hmm. abroad or friends or musicians hmm. it's just like you know that uh, uh an indian uh um uh, if you if you get an indian to make a beautiful dish like a pasta or a lasagna or something like that they'll probably make a dish which is comparable to any of the master chefs anywhere in the world but just before it goes onto the table put a little be, hot sauce there'll there'll be a little bit of chili powder and turmeric powder <laughs> thrown into it you know it's the same with me no matter how much i try to make music which is western or if if i make an attempt that i'm going to make something that's completely western or i'm going to do something that's completely hip hop or whatever there will be some indian garnishing or some indian element put into it because that's how i am that's how i think right so tell me uh, when you uh, when you tell your parents must have been typically indian right i mean he, your dad is a doctor so he'd obviously want you to join the medical profession and at what stage did you think that okay music is the way i want to go and uh, i know that you you went to a dental college <laughs> yes i did so uh, typical indian parents i think our viewers uh, even those uh, expat indians who watching this will empathize with this completely imagine a young kid telling his parents in india that uh, music is going to <laughs> be my career and this is in the 80s or 90s i think you yeah you in the 90s that. correct in the 90s so tell me about that period in your life so as we all know in the 12th grade is when we have to make a strong decision as to what we want to do for the rest of our lives yeah so uh, from my childhood i knew very very clearly uh, i had no other ambitions but i just wanted to become a musician mm -hmm. and my parents knew about that but somehow in their head they thought that music is still a hobby you know it's not a profession mm. so when i articulated it to my parents uh, in my 12th that you know that i want to take up a career in music they were furious <laughs> so they were they were like okay but what are you going to do you know like music is a hobby but what are you going to do professionally hmm. so after a lot of fighting with my parents a lot of arguments we hmm. reached a compromise that i'll finish off a degree in dental surgery and once i got that degree then my parents would never question me again for the rest of my life <laughs> so that's what i did i went to 5 years of college I uh, in the evenings I was doing music professionally so my professional musical career had already started while I was doing my dentistry okay and at the end of 5 years I did not know anything about dentistry but I got a degree where did uh, <laughs> you studied in bangalore I studied in bangalore itself okay and then uh, of you're course, a bishop cotton's boy yes so viewers listeners here's a bishop cotton's boy who's done his work. he's he's paid his uh, you know dues gone through dental college and then become a musician so i had to keep my parents happy because right. uh, we cannot not listen to our parents yeah so i gave the degree certificate the day i got it to my father and i told him that this is for you i think dentistry is a very noble profession and an okay. important profession but it's not for me i want to be a musician mm. and then after that uh, instead of doing music in the evenings professionally i was doing music uh, the whole day okay so ricky who inspired you in the sense that did somebody tell you i'm i'm sure somebody must have told you this that if you want to do music you've got to learn it 
but you apparently are a self-taught initially, uh, initially musician. So tell me about that journey also. So uh, initially, I was self-taught as a musician, and uh, I was uh, even then, you know, I was quite successful in terms of, uh, you know, I was winning competitions, I was winning awards and stuff like that. But then, uh, when I got into dental college, uh, that is when I decided that okay, music is going to be my profession for sure. Hmm. So let me sort of over overcome a potential handicap that could happen in the future with me not having a music education. Hmm. So that's when I took a music education in Western classical music and in Indian classical music, that is Hindustani classical music. So that, as I said, I could overcome that handicap that potentially could happen later on. Because if you have a music education, uh, you know what people have done in the past. You know what are the rules. Because every art form is all about breaking the rules, but you have to know the rules in order to break them. Okay. And uh, also, it gives me a lot more confidence when I'm communicating with other musicians because I'm speaking the same language as them. Hmm. So that is why I thought that the music education that I took was extremely beneficial, and I would encourage every musician to treat their profession with a lot of respect by taking up a music education. Isn't there a little bit of snobbery also in that that those who have not had that training are not given that kind of respect, even if they are fabulous musicians? Till you know these talent shows came on air on television. Till then, if if a kid was to you know kid in the sense if an eighteen year old or a twenty year old would apply to say the Sangeet Natak Academy or want to perform in music academy in Chennai or you know perform anywhere, the first question is that where have you trained? How many degrees do you have in music? What kind of classical background? Isn't there a snobbery also in the uh, world of music? Probably there is. Uh, I've not faced that. Uh, I'd not faced that even in the initial stages before I had a music education. But I guess there will always be snobbery because if somebody has gone through a degree, they will want other people also to go through it. So I guess that kind of ego will exist. Hmm. But I would say that it is incorrect uh, to say that a musician is not a good musician just because they have not had an education. There are some fantastic self-taught musicians in every genre of music everywhere in the world who are. Uh, who are unparalleled when it comes to their music virtuosity and their knowledge. Hmm. So I guess, uh, you know, it's an art form. You can pick it up yourself. You can be taught. Uh, but but I guess taking a music edu education, as I said, is, is in my opinion very important so that uh, everybody's speaking a common language. Hmm. And plus, you know, the rules that have been set forth by you know, our ancestors and, uh, you know, and people before us. So it becomes easier for us to figure out what we have to do. Also to respect the heritage, I guess, because nationalism, patriotism is so important for you. Uh, it It's also a way of appreciating a kind of music because classical music, unless you've grown up with it or ha have a year for it, it's hard to understand the nuances. So I guess it's easier to appreciate the art form if you have learnt it also. No, you brought up a very good point over there when it comes to music education itself. Because I believe that music education itself should become compulsory in schools. Mm. And the reason for this is that not everybody has to become a musician. Right. Just like if you're learning physics, not everybody has to be a physicist. So not everybody has to be a musician. But I believe that a country is defined by her art. And a country is defined by you know how amazing the artists are. And, uh, and uh, art is a very good soft power, especially when it comes to music, when it comes to a country. So what happens is that if there is a basic music education in schools, then you are uplifting the art itself. Because me as a musician, I can make more complex art, I can make more beautiful art, because I know people will understand it. Because they are sensitized to music. 
and I don't have to constantly think that okay, I have to dumb down my music because people will not understand. Mm. So I believe that a music education will help tremendously in uplifting the art, and I think that is very important. Okay, let me go back again to your childhood when you were talking about you know that your professional journey was going on simultaneously with your dental uh, studies, like you were playing professional music. Uh, what were you doing? Because I know you were part of a band. Yes. So tell me about that. It, I mean, it's. I guess every young kid's dream, right, to be part of a band absolutely, in college years. Absolutely. Tell me about those years. No, it is exactly like what you mentioned. Uh, I used to play the guitar. I used to play the keyboards. So I was part of multiple bands. One band in particular was a band called Angel Dust. We traveled the length and breadth of India. Did concerts everywhere. Won a whole lot of competitions. It's it's everybody's dream to you know be a part of a band and you know and have that attitude and stuff <laughs> like that. And just like every other musician, I had an evolution of music in my head. Uh, because while growing up, I was listening to a lot of rock music. Then it went into heavy metal music, and I thought that every other genre of music is terrible. Mm. You know, why aren't people listening to heavy metal music? And then later on, it went. A I little... guess it's also the nineties. No, Jethro Tull ne suna to kya jia? Yeah, exactly. Right? Or Metallica or, or whatever. Or Metallica or whatever. So you have to be uh, wearing those black T-shirts, yes. and you have to have the long hair and the attitude and all of that stuff. Then slowly, as I evolved in music, I listened to jazz music. Then, of course, I I settled in on Indian classical music, uh, both the Indian classical music forms, the North Indian and the South Indian forms. And then I realized that this is what I want to do. Okay. You know, I want to have. Uh, I think the best emotive response that an audience can have is through Indian classical music, because Indian classical music is based on feel. It's based on expression. Uh, it's based on improvisation, and that is what I that is what excited me so much about it. and uh, you didn't experience a divide ricky between uh, western and uh, indian classical like uh, friends peer group saying what you're going to learn hindustani you're going to learn classical tala raga you're going to be doing <laughs> that was the case uh, during those days during those days it was uncool hmm. uh, to uh, to be a uh, indian classical musician because of the way um, you know the way the mindsets in the country was in big cities but now i'm really thrilled that for the last few years that's changing completely there is a lot more pride in being indian in our, in india and uh, uh, younger people i've seen so many young people who i speak to in colleges and all of that stuff when they talk about playing a musical instrument previously the default was guitar you know yeah. that we have to have a guitar in our hostel room and we have to be playing rock music and all of that stuff that is changing right now okay the mindsets are changing where people want to learn the bansuri people want to learn the veena people want to learn the star mm. they want to learn the tabla because people are feeling a sense of pride of being indian and that is a new phenomenon that i'm seeing when did you figure out that okay these instruments is, i want to master these instruments not really my favorite <laughs> um i guess uh, also it depends upon my skill level uh, mm. so uh, i've uh, i can play a whole lot of instruments uh, just uh, if somebody puts me at gunpoint i can play a whole lot of instruments mm. but at the same time my main instrument is basically the piano and yeah. uh, the keyboards mm. and uh, but you have an inclination to the flute too and i can yeah. see that like i i can play like a little bit of each and every instrument pretty mm. much Uh, but then i always believe that if there is an instrumentalist who can do something better than you then you always have to work with them okay so the little bit knowledge that i have in all of these instruments helps me to compose for these particular musicians like for example if i'm making a song um uh, my little bit of knowledge on the flute uh, helps me compose better for a flute player mm. or helps me compose better for a a a carnatic violin player or for a uh, for a hindustani sitar player 
So that's what I believe, you know, that uh, it's important to know a little bit about everything so it makes it more conducive uh, towards composing music for these various uh, instrumentalists. Hmm. Uh, and I don't need to be a master of all these instrumental, I mean, all yeah. these instruments because it's better to work with people. And I love working with people. I love collaborating with people because you're not only bringing the instrument into your music, yeah. but you're bringing their mindsets, their musical knowledge, their musical education, their life experiences, their thoughts, their philosophies. And that's what makes a song great. Right. I'm going to get to the masters who you've worked with. Uh, you yourself, of course, are one. But then, I mean, when great minds get together, of course. Uh, you know, fabulous stuff comes out. But I'm going to get to that. But I want to come back to what you were talking about, the dumbing down, you know. Um, I've asked this of uh, many musicians uh, who, you know, I've interacted with, who I've had on the podcast too. Uh the the effect of films one yes. uh, Bollywood music or Kannada film music correct. which you've also been part of that and jingles yes you worked on thousands of jingles correct. I think correct so when you work on them uh, on those uh, in your mind do you think of it as another piece of art that you're creating or is it some dumbing down that you need to do because there's a client that you yes. have to look at yes. So in terms of jingles, I, I was very happy to work on jingles for about 13 or 14 years of my career. Did more than 3,500 of them. So jingles is a completely different game uh, where, you know, there's a, as you said, there's a client involved. There's a brief given to you. And what you create for one particular client is has to be completely different. It's about being correct or wrong rather than being high quality or low quality. Like, for example, I can make a really, really high quality jingle for, let's say, a soap brand. Mm. Now, it, it's a very high quality jingle. That same jingle won't work for Mercedes-Benz. So it's all about being right for the brand and wrong for the brand. So one has to just keep that in mind that it's not about quality, it's about being correct or wrong. So I did that. And, and of course, I loved working on jingles uh, during the time that I did because it was almost like a workout. The more you go to the gym, the better you get at it. So in this case, I'm working on one jingle or two jingles for television or for radio in a day. And the more I was working on it, the better I was getting at composition. And so every day was a different challenge. It wasn't stifling, Ricky? No, it wasn't stifling at all because it, it's the way that you look at it. You know, okay. it's, it's the perspective that you have. Hmm. So for me, it was like yesterday I would work on a Tamil folk jingle. Today I would work on a Celtic jingle. Tomorrow I would work on, let's say, a hip hop jingle or a heavy metal jingle. So basically, it was completely different genres of music. I'm working with all these different musicians from around the world in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in fulfilling my vision for each jingle. And then all of those different forms of music find their way into my music. And that's why my music is such a unique brand of various genres of music. And then it sort of sinks in after some time that there are no genres of music. It's just good music and bad music at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. So, the, so when I make a song today, because of my work in jingles, of course, I don't do that anymore. But because of my work in jingles, it's made me realize that, you know, that you just have to make a good song. You know, you don't have to say that, okay, these are the instruments that mm -hmm. I'm going to use in the song mm -hmm. or I'm going to make a great... Hindustani classical song and I'm going to make a great hip-hop song or whatever. I just want to make a good song. That's all. Yeah, you you mentioned Celtic. I mean, you've worked with, I think, <coughs> I remember reading about it, where you had Zulu and you had yeah. Kannada and you yeah. had Urdu, Pashto, yes. all those, uh, uh, you know, all those uh, words of all this. You don't speak every language. Correct. How does it connect to you as a musician? How do these words connect to you? True. I've just uh, uh, releasing an album right mm. now with Stuart Copeland. Who Stuart is, Copeland. Yeah. Yeah, with Stuart Copeland, who is the uh, uh, for, uh, the, the drummer and the founder of the band The Police. Sold seventy five million uh, albums uh, uh, during his uh, career. Also uh, composed music for fifty Hollywood movies. So it's been a pleasure to collaborate with him time and again. Uh, our previous collaboration, Divine Tides, won us two Grammy awards. So. This particular album is very interesting because we've got multiple languages. We've got uh, two Zulu choirs, we've got an Armenian, we've got 
uh, we've got a, a Korean group, we've got a, 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 one of the biggest superstars in China, we've got Shankar Mahadev and we've got uh, Salim Suleiman on the album, the Berkeley Indian Ensemble. So it's a very, very interesting confluence of languages. So for me, what interests me a lot about, uh, about uh, music is, uh, when it comes to lyrics, is the musicality of the language itself. Hmm. Uh, you know, like how the words flow in a piece of music and how sometimes uh, the sound of the word conveys an emotion better than what the meaning of the word does. Mm. Um, and that is very prevalent in Sanskrit, for example. Sanskrit is my favorite language in the whole world because the words are so beautiful because the rhythm of the word and the sound of the word conveys a meaning even better if you try to translate the word. Even the national anthem, right? How many of us know what those words actually mean? But some are slung together, uh, it, it just creates a meaning. Absolutely. It is so rhythmic. It is so beautiful, it is so meaningful, even without knowing the meaning of the words. Mm. And that's why for this version of the National Anthem that I created, I decided to keep it instrumental, mm. simply because uh, of the magnitude of the orchestra, number one. And number two, more importantly, was that we as Indians, we listen to the instrumental, and I feel that the thought comes out better if you're thinking about the lyrics rather than listening to the lyrics. Mm. Because when you listen to that instrumental version of the na National Anthem, you cannot, if you're an Indian, you cannot listen to that version of the National Anthem without thinking of the words you know yeah and there's a beat to it yes which even if there is a slight variation you catch on you catch on immediately that there is there is something to this there's something dissonant to it you know there is yeah. a, 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 because that's how much ingrained the national anthem is and i say this time and again that every country has got a national anthem every mm. country has got one and in every country uh, unlike india in every country there is a slight amount of controversy associated with the national anthem yes. some people like it some people don't like it there is a political divide when it comes to national anthem or a few words that people do not like and they say it's controversial. Hmm. Our Indian national anthem is revered by everybody. Every single person across political ideologies, philosophies, geographic locations, everybody loves our national anthem. So I think it's the best piece of music on this planet. Yeah, I remember as a kid once saying that why is why do we say Punjab Sindh? Sindh is not there mm. with us anymore. So why is, why is there still Sindh? And then one person sitting and saying, so I said, okay, there are so many manifestations. That's a beautiful perspective. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many manifestations of explanations to to the national anthem. You were talking about languages uh, and working with refugees yeah. on the on the national anthem. Correct. Even there, there must have been accents and there must have been... Uh, so tell me about that experience. So the thing is that... Uh, uh, so I do a lot of work with the UNHCR, that is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And uh, uh, to celebrate 75 years of independence, I was speaking with a couple of musician refugees. Now, these are people who had to leave their country because mm. a lot of them had to leave their country because they are musicians. Mm. And it's amazing that India has given them a beautiful home. India has been so accepting and welcoming of them. And they are able to be musicians in India to the extent that, you know, that they can be. So when we were discussing that, how do we celebrate India's independence? They themselves said, oh, we know the national anthem uh, like perfectly. Hmm. So we can, uh, we can sing the national anthem to show our appreciation for the country and to show our appreciation to, uh, appreciation to the government and the people. I said, that's a brilliant idea. So 12 of them and me being the 13th person, we basically sang the national anthem together. And I did not have to guide them at all. They knew the national anthem beautifully. And they sang it really well. And I can tell you that that version, if you go on to yeah. you know, YouTube and you check out that version, 
the pronunciation, the accent, everything is impeccable, and all of them were such brilliant singers. They got it right. It was, it was amazing. Were you hesitant at any point of time to experiment with the national anthem because you know sometimes there's a blowback? Yes. So uh, would you think that uh, let me try with Vande Mataram or Sare Jahan Se Acha? That way, at least there's no blowback because uh, you know in a, in an we all live in an age of social media. Anything creative which is made, you know how the film industry is now. There's such a blowback that comes in. So does that does that make you fearful in some manner? No, actually, it does not make me fearful at all because uh, I think I, at least in my mind, in my perspective, uh, I believe that uh, nobody respects the national anthem as much as I do. So that is why, for me, the national anthem is sacrosanct. It cannot be tampered with. It cannot be touched. It cannot be reinterpreted in your own style, um, which is not uh, respectful to the national anthem. So I believe that if I do a version of the national anthem. At least I believe that it'll never be controversial because I'm sure that it gets the respect that so it deserves. So do you deserves. term it as an innovation, or what do you what do you like to call your version of the national anthem? If I want to say the version, I mean, what would you call it? So I would say that it is a different perspective, which is yet respectful to the national anthem. So a respectful variation in perspective. Okay, um, we were talking. Remember of uh, jingles when we started off on the other course, uh, and dumping down of yeah, yeah. Uh, you know this is what people say. You say that uh, doing music for jingles gave you a certain discipline, and you know you you work. But uh, what about what about your listeners? Um, do you when you are in a live audience as compared to in a studio when you are uh, working with a client? Do you have a different mindset when you when you do that? Like, I guess with an audience, you can just let yourself yeah. go. With a uh, with a client, do you have to dumb down for a jingle? Do you have to work <coughs> like that for say the music industry, uh, the film industry? How how do you compartmentalize? So there are always two form uh, two ways to do music. One is based on somebody else's sensibilities, hmm. uh, where a director comes to you or a brand manager from a hmm. uh, from a uh, agency hmm. comes to you and says that okay, this is the brief, and you have to create music based on this particular brief. So that is one style of doing music, and uh, sometimes it has to be about uh, figuring out what the current trends are, how to address your particular demographic. If it's a jingle which is meant where the target audience is children, it has to be made in a certain way. If your target audience is women, it has to be made in a certain way. If your target audience is high net worth individuals, then it has to be made in a certain way. Then, of course, when it comes to making music for yourself, which is what I do right now, hmm. where I create music based on my own philosophies, my own beliefs, and my own sensibilities, there there is no creative block or whatever because you're just expressing yourself through your music, and that's what I enjoy about my life right now. That I feel strongly about certain things, like like when it comes to. environmental topics like climate change or species extinction or celebrating nature in india celebrating the western ghats or celebrating our biodiversity so there it comes naturally to me because these are things that i feel you know and these are things that i want to communicate through my music so it comes very naturally and there uh, it's not about sitting down and trying to make a piece of music it just comes automatically and it's just it just comes easy to me just like how i'm speaking to you right now hmm. that's how easily the music flows out of me hmm. how so did the environmental part come in your life at what stage so the i've always been an environmentalist my whole life i've okay. always been two things one is an environmentalist and the second is a musician so while growing up in especially in uh, uh, it, as i mentioned when i grew up in north carolina so in roanoke rapids we lived in the middle of nowhere you know hmm. there were a lot of wooded areas and trees around us and we would have a whole lot of creepy crawly Dangerous yes, animals. Yes, I've been to North Carolina. I've seen all that. <laughs> like snakes yes. and uh, yeah. lizards and uh, mm. frogs and all mm. of these animals walking into our homes. Mm. And then uh, what happened was that uh, 
my parents and my teachers used to tell me that you know as soon as you see these animals step on them and kill them or you know or run away from them and my question to them always used to be that if we are supposed to kill them the minute we see them or we're supposed to run away from them or they're not important then why then why do they exist you know they obviously mm-hmm. have some sort of significance and of course now we all understand what the vedas have told us like years and years ago that every single species of animal no matter how seemingly insignificant is a very important part of our ecosystem and it's this delicate balance of our ecosystem that keeps all of us alive hmm. you know and so i used to look at these animals as being my brothers and sisters and things like that that's very early in life that very very so i was a very weird child basically yeah. <laughs> you grew up in a vegetarian home or was it uh, no it was a non vegetarian no. home but i converted to vegetarianism okay. about 10 years ago but my dad has been a vegetarian his whole life being a marwadi marwadi so mm-hmm. he's been a very very strict vegetarian my mm-hmm. mom uh, being the exact opposite Punjabi, yeah right <laughs> so then uh, uh my music used to be time and again reflecting the environment and as to make music about the environment but also my commercial work like jingles and stuff like that then in 2015 i had a life changing experience one is of course i won my grammy award my mm. first one and the prime minister modi invited me for a uh, for a meeting which i thought was going to be a 5 minute photo op and i went and did that meeting and then uh, uh prime minister modi and me started speaking about the environment because he's going to be visit he was going to be visiting South the Africa. climate change conference no no uh, the uh, the Cop. paris paris, paris. cop 21 okay so he's going to be visiting the cop 21 in december that year and he told me that he's going to be launching the solar alliance he's going to be giving a speech over there and you know and uh, he told me about his perspectives of climate justice and uh, the environment and then we had this long beautiful discussion which lasted almost an hour and then that is when he encouraged me that you feel so strongly about the environment you're doing all of this work with the united nations and all of that stuff mm-hmm. so he said that why don't you just dedicate your life he encouraged me to just dedicate my life and my art solely to the purpose of uh, of uh, environmental consciousness and positive social impact mm. and i left his office thinking that this is exactly what i'm going to do if the leader of your country is giving you advice obviously you have to take it very seriously and i took it very seriously and that was my life changing experience where i had left his office thinking that now every single piece of music that comes off my studio comes off my fingers comes out of my head is going to be about making this world a better place basically so for musicians to be on a mission mode uh like you are now yeah. uh to spread awareness consciousness uh it's it's a very life changing experience isn't it it is definitely because uh first of all you are a lot more free because uh, i'm making music only when i feel like making music i'm making music about things that are dear to me so the creation process of music is very simple now a lot of people want to be artists and they end up becoming professional artists but within that art form they're not doing things that they like doing they're not doing things which are their personality there are so many bollywood composers who constantly talk about gender equality but they've got so many item songs and misogynistic songs which are part of their repertoire because they're making music that is not who they are as people hmm. you know and they're being paid to do it they are it's a job and all of that stuff but art has to come from within like if you look at a artist like let's say vincent van gogh hmm. a contemporary artist and uh, one of the greatest contemporary artists ever so if he was making a new painting I cannot imagine him going to all the neighboring art galleries and saying okay what is everybody doing what is in trend let me do something like that or he he would just dig deep into his own soul and make a piece of art that is representative of him or if i wanted to know what kind of a person vincent van gogh was i'm not going to read a book about him i'm going to look at all his paintings and say okay this guy was a tormented soul he had a different idea of uh, of what the world is he had a very psychedelic mind and all of that stuff why isn't that happening in music in india hmm. because 
everybody's aspiration when they become a musician is that I have to do a Bollywood film. Hmm. If I tell people in India that I'm a composer, and this is only happens in India, not anywhere else. If I tell people I'm a composer, the first question they ask me is which film. Yeah. You know that is the thing. So that needs to change. I feel more and more musicians need to come out. and uh, you know and create music which they feel like making you know rather than be waiting for a producer or a director or an ad agency to come to them and tell them okay here's some money make some music i think initially it starts because you got emis to pay true right it begins with that that you have the bills to pay you have to put your kids to through school you have to pay the rent it begins with that and then somewhere you get stuck in the rut it to break free and do art which which gives you uh, you know some sense of purpose and somewhere then it gets lost i guess you know no, but Isn't everywhere it? else in the world if you look at it uh, musicians are creating music and creating their own albums which mm. have got their unique personality mm. like for example if you look at an artist like adele uh, if you listen to any of her songs you know how she is as a person yeah or if you look at a person like britney spears you listen to her songs also you know what kind of a person she is or coldplay or whatever so that uh, so that marriage of your personality with your music uh, is something that is uh, very rarely seen in india that's what i feel but if you're prolific uh, and you bring out a lot of poetry you write a number of yeah. plays you bring out a lot of music then the artist is lost somewhere because then it's for the audience i mean that's Correct. my perspective no, true, i don't know true true i agree with you i agree with you so uh, so the thing is that you have mainstream on one side and then you've got the niche genres on the other side so the mainstream genres what happens with that is it's a one size fits all approach now there are advantages to this there are disadvantages to this the advantage is obviously you are reaching out to a larger audience the disadvantage is that you are always the flavor of the month mm. because you do not have a loyal fan base yeah. your fan base will listen to you now and then they'll go for the next big hit later on yeah and this is even more so pronounced because of streaming because now there's no pride of ownership nobody's going to buy your music and keep it in their home for the rest of their life they're going to listen to it on spotify or on apple music oh. or whatever and they're going to move on from it because it's not even going to be stored in your phone True. So it's going to move on. Whereas if you are in a niche genre, then you're going to have a strong audience which is going to remain loyal to you and it's going to be a smaller audience. Mm. But it's going to be that loyal audience which is going to constantly wait for you to come up with your next thing and they're going to stay with you till the day you die. Is there an impermanence to your art form Ricky because see we were talking about Van Gogh or we are talk if we talk of Shakespeare it lives on because Correct. it's on the church walls on the ceilings Correct. uh shakespeare's plays are there again i come back to that that he he wrote for somebody he Correct. wrote for for money yes, yes. so you really it, to understand what is shakespeare's life you need to read about shakespeare Correct. because you can't get it from his and plays and there are many layers there are many layers, layers to his and life layers, yeah. right so uh, you know he could come with a merchant of venice you can come with a uh, julius caesar and you don't know where is shakespeare and this who's the person who's written it or if you look at so many of the artists who have painted the church walls or the ceilings you really don't know where the person is was he religious or was he the disturbed mind yes. which is right now comes to your music you've you've played for audiences you've played in the studio yeah. you've played in kannada music yeah. uh, you've done jingles where is the real ricky <laughs> Who the is the real Ricky? Is is right now for the last uh, uh, for the last uh, I would say eight years. Whatever music that I made is basically me. If you listen to any of my music from 2016, that's how I was a person in 2016. Listen to any of my music from 2020, that is exactly who I was in 2020. Listen to my music today, that's who I am as a person today. Yeah, and you started. You had a studio very early in life. Correct. Uh, what and then you've played, uh, you know, in in the best studios of the world. where do you feel india lacks as far as music studios are concerned our technical expertise does it get stunted because the lack of facilities here 
No, I think when it comes to music, I think India has got some of the best facilities in the whole world. The best technicians, the best facilities. I think that's not lacking. And music is more or less democratized right now because you can get a really, really good, um, high quality, international sounding quality, uh, you know, album just with a laptop and a microphone nowadays. The only reason why we need the big studios like Abbey Road Studios is if you want to fit in a hundred musicians in there. Mm. That's the only reason why you need the big studios. Otherwise, you can get a very, very high quality result in a room that 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 is just not even bigger than this room uh you can you can get like a like a billboard number 1 charting album uh you know in uh, which is made in a room which is just about this big and the purists who complain about the excessive use of technology in music taking away the the purity of the sound like if it's just a flute there's nothing more pure i feel than the sound that comes from little bamboo yeah you know there's nothing purer than that uh from that you know like uh, it, that's my perspective but you tell me about the the techno element that comes in into music so there are multiple uh, ways to answer that question one is of course uh, the acoustic sound of an instrument is obviously the best but this is not even i'm not even talking about recording like for example if we were to listen to a flute which was recorded in the highest possible recording quality whatever 32 bit 96 kilohertz the highest recording quality that technology can offer we listen to it on a speaker over here hmm. rather than having a flute player stand over here and uh, play in front of us now even if the flute player was playing off key and uh, and the flute player was a very average flute player even then we'll enjoy that better than the recording correct because the because the sound the resonance and all of that stuff it it's something that is very pleasing to the ear so recording technology itself no matter how good the technology is cannot replace that but at the same time i believe that uh, technology has come to such a stage that you can get very realistic sounding uh uh you know hmm. uh, sounding instruments uh with just the computer without even having a musician you can get a beautiful violin by just uh, you know uh, creating the violin piece or the violin solo or a guitar or or uh, or a sitar on the computer you get some very very realistic sounds and you and i've created some of these libraries and sounds but why i do not use them personally is that for me it is more beneficial to bring a musician into the studio because especially when it is an indian musician because i create a composition and i create a small solo for the sitar player sitar player comes in and the sitar player with his or her indian mindset takes that composition to a whole new level because indian musicians are used to improvisation they used to listening to the feel and bringing in their own mm-hmm. ideas and their own thoughts and they go into places where you would never imagine your composition could go into and i believe that if you give the freedom to an indian musician to play on your composition they will take your composition to a whole new level and they'll take a composition into places that you yourself could not imagine and they'll bring in their life experiences their experiences of working with other composers their uh, as i said their music education their their training in the sitar they'll bring all of that and they will take your composition to whole new levels and that's what i want to do for me it's not just about the sound of the instrument because i can get the sound of the instrument with a computer for me it is the musician that matters and the musician's mindset and who are the ones in india who you've i, I know it would be unfair for me yeah. to ask you to name, name one or two whatever but it's like when did you realize that no the machine's not going to give me what this magic i'm getting in you know in the real playing out here when did you feel that about indian music so uh when i started getting the time to make music okay. so when it uh, uh, when it came to advertising work you have to deliver something within about 4 or 5 hours or sometimes like 12 hours or whatever but not never more than a day so you got very short time to actually deliver a piece of music so there are a lot of compromises over there mm. sometimes you work with musicians if you have the time or if the musicians are available or you have to do everything on the computer and mm. you have to just uh, deliver it mm. 
Whereas when I started making music for myself, after that meeting with Prime Minister Modi, as I mentioned, and you know, and I started creating music which is based on my own beliefs and my own philosophies. There, I started getting time to make music. So there, I could wait for a musician to come into the studio. I could wait for a musician to be available. Hmm. And then I started working with lots of musicians. I've done more than about forty or fifty concerts all over the world with Pandit Vishwamohan Bhatt. I've done concerts with uh, Aman and Ayan. And yeah, I've uh, with him. I've collaborated in the studio with, huh. and um, also with Stuart Copeland. Done concerts with him. Done recordings yeah. with him. So I've collaborated with uh, musicians and different musicians. And then I start realizing that for me. that confluence of minds that confluence of ideas that heart to heart connection that i have with the musician is amazing i'll give you another example there's this algerian violin player that i was and am a huge fan of and i wanted to collaborate with this algerian violin player so i went to algeria and uh, i went to the studio and i sat with him and he only knew arabic he did not know any other language and uh, i knew only english and bits of hindi uh, i've have i've always since childhood have had a problem with picking up languages so mm. unfortunately i don't you know my mother tongue um, i've had i mean that that's for another discussion but i've had this adhd problems and all of that stuff and no, i want to come out, to that because you yeah. talked about music and autism once yeah. so i want to come to that yeah but so, go ahead so uh, but uh, the thing is that so i've had difficulty picking up languages so english is my is the first language that i learned as a child so that's the language which i'm most comfortable speaking in uh but i could not even communicate with him through even sign language because our reference points are so different and our cultures are so far apart you know mm. uh and it was a very frustrating experience then at the end of 2 hours we decided that we'll probably just give up on this recording and then i started playing on the piano i started playing a piece of music he pulled out his violin and then he started playing along with me and how he got the emotion right is just pretty shocking which showcases that music is truly a universal language and then we just kept playing kept playing we recorded that and that went on to the album that Amazing. recording of ours where we did not we could not communicate through language we could not uh, communicate through words we could not communicate through sign language through gestures but music got through between both of us you know and that is the beauty of music you've done hattrick grammys tell me the first time that you did it because you you talked about being an indian and with all these greats that you worked with yeah. but the first time that you you got the grammy what was that experience i mean i'm sure the third one probably is not all that magical or maybe it is i <laughs> it don't is, know you it tell is, me it is okay so the grammy has always felt like an unattainable dream you know uh, it's a thought that would not even come into our minds especially doing non mainstream music sitting down in india um it was not something that i mean you watch the grammys on television and that's the end of yeah. it but then i won my first grammy when i was 33 years old it was absolutely amazing how it works is that uh, the nominations are announced in december every year i was very shocked to get nominated like extremely shocked and then everybody who told you that you've got so basically uh, and where were you it's uh, i was sleeping and uh, it's night time in america i mean it's night time in india and it's day time in los angeles so they made the announcement and i kept getting these notifications on my phone while i was sleeping mm -hmm. and uh, the notifications were like 5 or 6 a second and then i uh, uh, went to my phone and looked at it and i kept seeing the word grammy on every notification and then finally i realized that oh you know i've been actually nominated for a grammy award so who did you go and tell the first your dad <laughs> the like, musicians who worked on the dad. album <laughs> 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 no, the musician of course i talked to my parents about it they live with me hmm. and uh, but uh, but i spoke to the musicians who were part of the album okay. that wow you know that this is what's happened hmm. and uh, then uh, it's a two month waiting period for the actual award ceremony hmm. and uh, everybody would constantly ask me are you nervous i'm like no i'm not at all nervous because it had not sunk in you know hmm. that was the reason why what i was what did you wear nervous. when you went for that so i wore a uh, i wore a suit the first time i wore hmm. a tuxedo 
and uh, because I wanted to blend in, you know. I mm, just, of course. So that is what. So I wore a tuxedo, and that's like the dress code. Of course, the following times I wore Indian clothes because I realized yeah. that you know that that's what I should be doing. Mm. But I uh, so I went to the ceremony, and when I went to the ceremony, that is when the nervousness started kicking in because I saw all these greats sitting down with me, uh. people who I've admired my whole life, all these legends, and then it became real that wow, this is actually a Grammy award that I'm up for, you know. Yeah. Luckily for me, uh, ours was the first. Uh, uh, ours was the first category to be announced. Huh. So because I cannot imagine, even if, even if it was the fifth or sixth category, I don't think I would have been able to uh, sit there without fainting. You know, with the <laughs> amount of nervousness that I had. Okay. So I was the first category that was announced, and they announced that I was the winner. Do they serve food at all at this? I mean, it's a silly question. They to don't. Ask, you have to carry energy bars to, and all that stuff. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That uh, you know, at it's all a these very tiring process. It's very very tiring process. And what uh, did you eat? Uh, I I just carried like two bars, uh, two two chocolate bars in my pocket because people warned me that you have to do that. You're going to get very hungry. Huh. So I did that. Yeah. Okay. And after you got that, what was it like? Like you came back to the hotel room and you just like, I've got a Grammy. No, it's it's quite a, a, a stressful process after that because Ooh. once you win the Grammy, you're taken backstage. Okay. And then once you're taken backstage, uh, you have to sign a few contracts and you have to. Uh, uh, you have to meet with a bunch of people, take some pictures, and then they have all these media rooms. They have got about thirty, thirty-five media rooms hmm. where you have to go from media room to media room, give interviews, take photographs, and you know all of that stuff. Then you have to address a press conference backstage while the awards function is still going on. So you have to do all of so all of that takes about one, one and a half hours and things like that. And then after that, you get back to your hotel room completely exhausted, and then uh, and then it becomes daytime for India, hmm. and then everybody in India start calling up. So basically, for the next uh, uh two or three weeks it's non stop so you cannot uh, you don't have the time to actually sit down and revel in the glory that you've just received and all of that stuff you know you See, you, you get the third grammy and when you go up there what do you think ah been there done that or does it still have that magical feel no no it's still uh as if it is the first time it's it's still very very magical because you know uh when we talk about awards itself uh, there are always two ways to look at awards. One mm. is, you know, vanity that, oh, I'm better than everybody else and mm. whatnot, you know. Mm. And I think that's a very wrong perspective to look at awards because you should not look at awards as being a competition that has been won. Mm. I believe that, especially with the kind of music that I make, which, which is all about advocacy, about spreading a message of awareness, spreading a message about uh, taking action within our own lives, all of that stuff. Mm. I believe that awards need to be taken as a very strong platform for us to be doing bigger and better things and to reach our music and the messages that these music bring to a wider and wider audience. Mm. And that's how I believe that awards are quite important because awards give you that platform to do bigger and better things and to reach your message to further audiences. So at what point of time did the UN reach out to you and what was their brief to you? What did they expect you to do? And do you find that work fulfilling, the UNHCR work? So I work with multiple agencies with the UN. I work with the UNCCD, which is the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. It's mainly on climate change issues and issues with when it comes to land degradation and gender uh, equality. Uh, the second agency that I work with is the UNHCR, which is a refugee agency. And I also work with the WHO, also work with UNICEF. So basically, I believe that one has to have a very holistic approach towards uh, towards problem solving. My main focus is the environment. But at the same time, I believe that especially in the global south uh, everything is about uh, about survival and thriving hmm. and environment is looked upon more as a problem of uh, thriving rather than a problem of survival because problems of survival are current problems like you know immediate problems like poverty hunger hmm. malnutrition education um, uh, sanitation gender inequality gender violence these are looked upon as problems of surviving 
So I very quickly realized that if we were to solve problems of the environment, one has to first of all have indigenous solutions within countries and uh, and the whole Western narratives, uh, you know, which are a one size fits all approach cannot work. Like for example, uh, if you go to a rural area anywhere in the global south uh, where there is a lot of poverty, and if you tell them that, you know, let's make a better future for our uh, children and our children's children, they'll be like, what about me, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, what about me? You know, I don't have electricity or I don't have uh, energy. I don't have a good standard of living. Or if you tell them, like the Western narratives of, we have to consume less of everything. They'll be like, we don't have enough to consume, first of all, you know? Yeah. So that is why uh, one has to ensure that you have to be realistic, this whole armchair activism when it comes to The language is only different. No? The language is also different. No, what I mean is that the language of environmentalists, of, you know, consume less and all, it's it's alien to people who don't have. Exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. And, and I see this happening in the big cities in India too, yeah. where everybody talks about stop this, stop that. and Plastics. You know, yeah. Just stop. How are they supposed to? Yeah, because the, everything is about, uh, uh, of course, plastics is, uh, is a huge, huge problem. But, but at the same time, there, one has to take an account of, uh, of uh, you know, of convenience, of, of uh, you know, of cost of uh, whether alternatives are available. So one needs to do that and we have to figure out ourselves, you know, that how do we reduce our consumption of plastics? Yeah. How do, so it, it, it needs to come at an individ individual level and that's going to be extremely important. Yeah. But yeah, so that is why I decided that I'm going to have a very holistic view towards problem solving where I have to look at, uh, I have to look at uh, solving many problems in order to get into the, uh, in order to yeah. solve the problem, which is my main objective of mitigating the effects of climate change. Like, you know, uh, I, on the for the podcast, I met with a tribal activist yeah. uh, in Madhya Pradesh. Yeah. Now, what he was saying was like, okay, we're not anti-development, yes. but if you actually see, you're building a highway out here, fine, you have to build a highway, fine, you have to, you know, development has to happen and those tribals are going to get displaced you give them okay i'm going to build a building and here is your apartment which you'll get in lieu of that land uh, that you know you were living off the forest so you go and live in indore yeah i'm taking your land away in madhya pradesh for a highway which is to come so you've displaced that tribal and put him in a, or his family into a flat in indore mm. He doesn't know how to. There's no. He doesn't know how to sustain himself hmm. and his family. They've only lived off the forest, so you know the development at what cost. And then there is no secondary. There's no training him for yeah. something else. So there are, you know, there, there are these divisions which happen. So that's where I was like, you know, okay, fine, environmental and all fine, and development fine. But where are they going to marry? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm going to get a little philosophical to answer your question. Now, there's a problem because we as human beings have hijacked the word development itself. because And so much so that we've got a separate term which is known as sustainable development. Mm. Now, sustainable, sustainable development does not make sense to me because by nature of the word development itself has to be in collaboration with the environment uh, or in coexistence with nature. Um, but when we think about development, the only thing we think about is basically paved highways and we think about uh, uh, New York skyline mm. and concretization and all of that stuff. So development itself should always mean that we are developing together, you know, not just with human beings, but with all species, with the forest and wildlife, because it's not about just keeping the forest and wildlife intact. We need them, we need the forest and wildlife intact for our own survival, you know. Correct. So that is that is what needs uh, to be understood, you know. And 
instead of the word sustainable development there needs to be another term for unsustainable development mm. because development by nature of the word itself should be in coexistence and in balance with nature and that is what is extremely important because we to keep talking about saving the planet we keep talking about saving the world we are too insignificant a species to even talk about that simply mm. because um when we talk about mitigating the effects of climate change stopping global warming temperatures are rising the planet will survive without us the planet in fact will thrive if there are no human beings us. on this planet yes that's true what more of trying... us spoil the planet exactly and what we are what we are actually trying to do by mitigating the effects of climate change and by stopping global warming is trying to ensure that we do not create an inhospitable environment for us human beings to live on this planet hmm. because if we go on with business as usual and climate change has its effects and its disastrous effects global warming reaches a stage which is above the tipping or beyond the tipping point then we won't be able to live on this planet yeah. and we will not survive because the heat will be too much for us to bear um the cyclones and hurricanes are getting worse and worse with every yeah. passing day we see it in the news so we are creating an inhospitable environment for us yeah so what we are doing is by being responsible to the environment is basically not saving the planet but we are saving ourselves we are saving us human beings you know you were talking about the western guards and environment and things like that it's it's important for you because being a bangalorean you know how important the western yes. guards are i mean and i know because cousins of mine you know we when we were going oh monkeys monkey yeah. menace they come and ruin the our crops yeah. and they they keep talking about that and then a bunch of uh, my cousins and friends and all they took it upon themselves that it's the monsoon season they take all the mango seeds that they've consumed the Correct. mangoes they just go on a picnic they go on the ghats on agumbe ghat and they just keep throwing it yeah. and there'll be fruit trees yeah they not they don't need nurturing you put the fruit trees the monkeys will not come down to your correct you know to your farms and destroy because there are fruit trees this is what hema malini has been saying in mathura yeah. in mathura there is a problem with monkeys and yeah. and in simla there is a problem you cut down their fruit trees where are they going to go so if you can get you know the word environmentalist as soon as i'll say uh, ricky cage is an environmentalist everybody will think oh here activist activist yeah but <laughs> right? i'm I, i'm a person who believes in advocacy because i believe in of working with people rather mm. than working against people and yeah. protesting so that's what i say if 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 there's a positivity attached to an activist environment activist uh, rather than you know this militant person yeah. who will go on a dharna and so then you're driving people away you're not bringing people together but now that you brought up this topic of the monkeys i'll give you another example mm. now do you remember in 2020 when the pandemic had just started there was this very powerful image of a female pregnant elephant in the middle of a water body and she uh, like a dead female pregnant elephant who was in the middle of a water body and uh, you know this image had gone all over the world you know it uh, uh, this happened in kerala image went all over the world it was on cnn it was on uh, bbc it was of course on all the indian networks and all of that stuff so that was a very powerful image mm-hmm. and it captured everybody's imagination and it uh, it brought about a lot of emotions so the story of that was that this female pregnant elephant she walked out of the forest in search of food and she went to this farmland and when she entered this farmland she ate a pineapple little did she know that the pineapple was laden with explosives so she ate the pineapple and then what happened is that it fatally damaged her mouth and then she wobbled her way through while she was dying and she walked to this lake she stood in the middle of the lake and she passed away and that image was very powerful her standing while she was dead and of course she was pregnant so that made things even more emotional and there was a whole lot of knee jerk reactions across the world that the farmer should be killed the farmer should be hung upside down the farmer should be put into jail for the rest of his life and yes he should be punished 
But the problem is, is that we as city people, we live in bubbles, you know, and we do not look inwards to see how am I at fault yeah. for this thing to happen. And then if you think about it, we as city people, if we do not have electricity for three minutes, we are so inconvenienced. Yeah. If, we, if a new iPhone comes out or a new Android phone comes out and they're out of stock, we're like, why can't they make more of those? What's wrong with them? Why can't they make more of these gadgets? Why can't they make them fast? Now, if you think about it, where is all that coal coming from for making our electricity? It's coming from digging up those forests. Where is all that, uh, you know, uh, cadmium, lithium, magnesium, silica, iron, all of that, where is it coming from for building our electronic gadgets? It's coming from digging up those forests. So it's our consumption patterns. It's simply our consumption patterns, which are basically destroying those forests. When those forests are destroyed, the elephants have no other alternative but to walk outside the forest mm. to get their food. They go to a fringe area where there is uh, a farmland. Now the farmer has to make the very painful and punishable offense and, it, and the farmer should be punished. But the farmer has to make this very painful decision to, to save prevent. his or her livelihoods, to save the lives of his or her family and children by doing this ridiculous thing of putting explosives in a fruit. And, uh, you know, and uh, basically that's what's happening. So what needs to happen is that all of us, instead of protesting, instead of looking at what other people can do, waiting for governments to take action, waiting for intergovernmental mm. bodies to take action, we need to look inwards and see what can I do? How can I change my consumption pattern? We need to realize that we are significant. We may say that, oh, if I stop using single-use plastics, what difference will it make? Or if I do not buy the latest iPhone and I wait maybe one more year or two years to buy another iPhone or an or a electronic gadget so that I reduce my consumption of electronic and I create less electronic waste, what difference will it make? But all of these things are very significant and we need to understand that we are significant and whatever changes we make in our own tiny incremental capacity actually matters. How are you using your music to, uh, to pass on this message? Because you, these are... Two things that matter so much to you in life. Your your one is your creativity, and two is these issues which you know matter so much to you. How do you marry these two now? It's basically whatever I feel strongly about. It's communicated through music, so that's the way it is. Hmm. I've also started a children's education program known as uh, My Earth Songs. So that is basically about thirty songs, which are like hmm. nursery rhymes and hmm. adolescent rhymes, which are currently in textbooks in India. We are uh, and in other English-speaking countries, we are. Uh, in I think about uh, currently about almost 20 million textbooks all over the world where each song is about a different topic they are very fun rhymes very positive very energetic very uh, like very catchy the minute you listen to it children like you know continue singing it because the songs that you learn during a childhood are songs that you never forget mm -hmm. so that's a principle that we've gone with so these songs have been very successful because you are starting the conversation on conservation mm -hmm. very early you know with uh, with children and I believe children are always born with an inherent love for nature, with, with inherent compassion, with inherent kindness, with inherent uh, empathy. But what we are doing with our education systems and all of that stuff all over the world is we are systematically erasing that from our children. That's what I believe. So the idea of these songs is to continue uh, to, uh, what do you call that, uh, keep these amazing qualities that children are born with. Okay. Two things that I want to talk about is one, you said that music should be part of the school curriculum. Uh, growing up, uh, in, in the Indian education system, music was part of SUPW, yes, socially yes. useful, productive work. Yes, yes. Right? Like hobbies. You were, like hobbies. You even, were not graded on it, so nobody paid attention. Even libraries to it. also today, music yeah. is always kept in the hobby section. You in know? the hobby section. Yeah. Right? So, in fact, even if you go to a, a shop, a, a, you know, you go to a where books and toys and everything is, you will not find anything on music. Yeah. You have to hunt for the art section to find Correct. anything on performing arts Correct. will be in some corner. 
Correct. So one, you said music should be part of the school curriculum. Should it be graded or not? And how important should it be? Two, I've read an interview of yours where you said that music can even help uh, in in you know uh, in improving the skills in autism affected yeah. children. So both these, if you could explain to me. So, firstly, I believe that music should be a very important part of the education system. Whether it's graded or not, I'm not sure because I'm not an educationist. But I believe that it it, it uh, strongly helps the cognitive abilities of a children, their uh, critical thinking. Also, it is it has been widely proven everywhere in the world uh, that uh, children who are well versed with music are very good at other things. You know, they they sort of like you know they sort of develop abilities when it comes to maths, when it yeah. comes to sciences. Uh, even when it comes to language abilities, most famous of musicians have been mathematicians. Exactly, too. exactly. Yeah. Like Albert Einstein, uh, you know, and of course the father of nuclear sciences in India, Dr. Raja Ramana. So all of them have been musicians. So. APJ Abdul Kalam was. APJ Abdul Kalam ji was yes. also a musician. So, so I think music uh, can play a very, very important role in the overall growth of a child. And also, as I mentioned earlier, that when it comes to music, you want to uplift the art. You want to uplift musicians. You want to uplift the creativity. And the only way for that to happen is for musicians. Uh, I mean, for the whole of India to be sensitized uh, to yeah. music and that will help the art form itself grow. And it doesn't matter whether it's classical or non-classical, right? Any form of music. Any form of music. Any form of music, whatever the educationists find will be interesting for children. Okay. You know, that's all that matters. So, I grew up with, uh, with, uh, with the ADHD, that is uh, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. Um, as maybe your listeners could uh, figure out, I speak very fast. I'm very fidgety. Uh, these are things that I have to control and I've been controlling since my childhood. I was a very bad learner. Um, I had a severe form of dyslexia and I still do. Where uh, when I read a book, and that's why I don't read books. Because when I read a line and then I go on to the next line, the first line looks completely different when I go back to it. So I have all of these problems. So uh, music was the one thing uh, that, uh, that, you know, that kept me sane. And music is the one thing that, uh, you know, that I could... I could fully understand and was good at, you know. How did you go through? Because um, in the 90s, not many schools in India knew about uh, dyslexia and ADHD. How did you go through schooling? And how did you go through a dental college? That's a lot of pressure. No, it was very difficult. So schooling was that uh, basically everybody used to call me stupid. So that's how I went through it. <laughs> and uh, everybody would, uh, I mean, uh, my uh, class workbooks would come back with with uh, red circles, like, you know, three or four red circles every line and I was punished a lot. So it was very difficult for sure because there was no sensitivity for these problems. And then, of course, I found a lot of coping mechanisms because I had to do this myself. So as early as the fifth or sixth grade, I started realizing that if my textbooks are colored, it works a lot. So I would underline my textbooks. I would sometimes use marker pens to color each line separately. So there were a lot of coping mechanisms that I had. And on your own, you figured... I had to figure it out on my own. There was, there was no, other no Nobody in school who helped you through this? No, because uh, the thing is that... Uh, and it's not nobody's fault, actually. Because nobody was sensitized to it the way that now but people... But your father's are, a physician. No, father also helped quite a lot. Okay. He, he did help quite but a lot. he knew that it was this. He knew, but at some level, he definitely knew it. Okay. At some level, he definitely knew it. But I guess my father also is a person who loves me a lot. So he not want me to feel any different you know yeah. so I guess you know it was a balance on that where he did not want me to feel any different so he would not over emphasize things but he he, used to, he and, and my mother used to show me a lot of empathy that is for sure okay. like when my classroom books would come back with a lot of red spellings I never got any scoldings from my parents that was never there because obviously in their mind they knew that something was wrong Okay. But in spite of that, you go into dental college yeah. and the curriculum is very heavy. That was also very difficult. So again, like, you know, if you look at my dental textbooks, 
Uh, I don't know whether I still have them, but like you know, again, like you know, marker pens were my friends. You know, I used to mark every single line with a different color, and uh, you know, and I used to try to learn and I used to buy hard things and all of that stuff. But then I'd sworn that after I finished my dentistry, I'm not going to read a book again. So I've not read a single novel, not read a single book, and at the same time, uh, you know, like comic books were things that I could read really well because there's additional stimulus you know like the pictures and all yeah. of that stuff the fonts are different they are more exciting so those were things and now with the internet when i read articles which have got pictures in them and the font sizes are bigger and you know and there's a little bit of music playing in the background so the more uh, the more stimulus that i get uh, it's it's easier for me to read and so, you got gift you got gifted in some other way in some <laughs> divine way that you had some other gift where this was lacking in your life true but that is also something that uh, if i may say so like you know which could be a little controversial but uh, that's i do not like the way that movies portray uh, children uh, especially when it comes to autism spectrum disorders because they always show that if a child has got autism they somehow get get victorious in something else like mm. tar is a mean per for example mm. uh, there's a child with autism and they've beautifully shown that but at the yeah. same time they show that the child wins a competition at the end yeah. or if you have a film like rain man you know the film with dustin hoffman yes. the guy is a genius at mathematics or you see the comedy movie the hangover uh, the guy is obviously at some spectrum disorder when it comes to autism and he's a genius at blackjack and counting cards and then you have forest gump he's a genius at running or whatever yeah. that is something that puts undue pressure on parents because parents are like mera beta aise hai he's like this he has to have some sort of genius in him you know yeah. or her so that i think should not be done because it it's not the case every time you know sometimes a child will not have that stroke of genius or maybe sure. the child will go through his or her entire life and you will not be able to discover what that genius ability is right. and we should not be putting that kind of pressure on uh, parents because even when i tell when the few people who i speak to about uh, about what i went through uh, you know they immediately say oh that is why you are a musician i'm like no that is no. not you know like uh, do not imagine that okay. a, a child who is going through this thanks for correcting yeah. me yeah yeah i get what you're saying yeah but did you uh, did you then uh, when you were learning music did you find the same kind of uh, you know like you got to learn notes how did you learn that then no, i guess people who are in these uh, 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 who have who are on these uh, spectrums i guess uh, you know they think differently like you know they think like Elon Musk for example hmm. he he's got Asperger's syndrome yes. which is on the autism spectrum disorder he thinks differently so similarly for me i think music just came easy to me hmm. but what i'm trying to say is that for some people yes. uh, maybe they may not have that correct or they will or they, there's a possibility that that skill would have never been discovered till the day they die you know huh. so that is why i said that you know that parents should not be put under this pressure you know did you um, because of the barbs and the the negativity that was part of your childhood and growing up years did that in any way contribute to your music also in some way was there more depth was there was there a was there an anger was there something that that went into your no, music no not an anger definitely not an anger uh, but i guess music was uh, my refuge you know uh, mm -hmm. like i could sit down in my room and either play music loudly or uh, you know or uh, sort of like you know uh, uh, play any musical instrument because uh, the thing is that uh, I my obsession with music started off not with an instrument but listening to music. My father in America he has he had this huge uh, music collection, you know, music collection from different parts of the world, not just the hits of that time, like you know the Bollywood music, the Mohammad Rafi music, and the Kishore Kumar music, and all of that stuff, and even the Bee Gees and Michael Jackson and Madonna. But he also had a lot of music from, uh, like you know, like Zulu music from South Africa. He had some really cool music from. 
different regions of the world mm. like uh, from european countries from southeast asian nations and all of that stuff mm. and i would listen to all of this music mm. understand these different cultures understand uh, so a lot of my understanding also of how this world works came through music you know mm. uh, uh, understanding cultures understanding traditions understanding mindsets and also uh, the like if you look at history itself like in a country like the united states of america the history has been chronicled through music the dust bowl era has got new songs written about yeah. it you have uh, the hippie era songs written about it vietnam war world war 1 world war 2 the trumpism mm. 911 there are songs written about that and history of the country itself is uh, chronicled through music and you learn so much through learning through uh, just listening to music and that's how my childhood was i learned a lot of what i know just through listening to music and listening to musicians and digressing a little bit that's also one of the things that i feel about india that since bollywood has got such a strong hold on music mm. we are losing out on that you know of chronicling our history through music okay. because pretty much every song that comes out of india that goes mainstream is either a love song or a rite of song and i wish huh. you know more and more musicians would make music from the heart because then our history also will be chronicled There's through music there's a lot of uh, socialist era music also you know when you look at that that period of the 70s yeah. the industry that is our period of industrialization and you know like the manoj kumar songs uh, you know eulogizing the farmer or the industrial worker this that but uh, i guess nobody has chronicled it like you're saying happens in america a lot of your music is made uh, in there uh, in america too right i have you uh, is there a, you know a more affinity towards america that you have when you make the music there you haven't released anything in it so i'll give an example now Uh, if you look at pandit ravi shankar hmm. everybody in india know who he is hmm. pandit ravi shankar you ask anybody on the street who's pandit ravi shankar sitar player hmm. what is the biggest uh, uh, what is the biggest uh, uh, award that he's won bharat ratna everybody knows that who is his daughters anushka shankar nora jones everybody knows that and i can challenge you this in your office or anywhere in the street you ask them to name one album of pandit ravi shankar nobody will be able to name one he's mm. done more than 20 albums nobody will be able to name an album you ask them to name one song of his nobody will be able to name one you ask anybody in the whole of india to hum a tune of his nobody knows yeah and that is because pandit ravi shankar even though he was playing pure indian music he was not doing hip hop music he was not doing when he would uh, when he would perform in america he was not doing hip hop music he was not doing western music he was playing pure hindustani classical music on one instrument that is a sitar but he was getting more appreciation for his music outside than in india yeah. and the same question if i was to throw in uh, in san francisco or sausalito or in uh, or in new york there are more people who will be able to answer the name of his albums than in india and that is a trend that really needs to change in india because i believe that we need to uh, we need to appreciate you know this this amazing talent so much so that why did uh, pandit ravi shankar settle down outside of ustad india ustad zakir hussain ustad zakir hussain uh, uh, ustad ali alakbar khan ali akbar khan yes uh, ali akbar khan saab uh, anushka yeah. everybody have basically you know the, why are these why are these people getting more recognition for their indian music outside of india than they are in india okay. so th- this is what i call the pandit ravi shankar syndrome so for me i had a very life changing experience another one uh when i was starting off my musical career when i was 19 years old hmm. so there i had watched quite a few bollywood concerts in america by then hmm. because i used to travel to america on holidays and things like that hmm. so then over there what happened is that i watched uh, watched uh, this uh, so basically like when you go to a bollywood concert bollywood basically uh, they can fill up stadiums they can uh, yeah. they can fill up complete arenas and all of that stuff doing 
uh, Indian, uh, I mean, doing Bollywood music. But the people who show up for those concerts are just the Indian diaspora. Hmm. So, because Bollywood, except with a few exceptions, Bollywood music has actually not broken cultural barriers. Bollywood music reaches out all over the world, but to the Indian diaspora. Jai Ho did. As I said, few exceptions. Yeah. The exceptions can be counted on your fingertips. The number of songs True. that uh, that have actually broken cultural barriers. Whereas when I watched a Pandit Ravi Shankar concert in San Francisco, I was very shocked that the demographic of the people within the theater was very representative of the demographic of the people who are representative of the city. The city had about a 80% Caucasian population. There was 80% Caucasian population inside the theater. About a 5 or 6% Asian population, only 5 or 6% inside the theater was Asian. And well, don't you think it's Ravi Shankar is because of the Beatles uh, connection? Whatever it is, but he's okay. playing Indian music. Okay. So that is the most important thing. So basically he was, uh, he was introducing a whole bunch of people who are normally not exposed to Indian music, to Indian music. Because that concert that I saw of his was a pure Hindustani classical concert. Hmm. And so that when I was sitting down in the theater, I felt that, wow, this gentleman is playing pure Indian music and he's getting all of these white people to listen to him and enjoy his concert and revere his music. He is truly taking Indian music to the world stage and he's truly breaking cultural barriers. And people were paying to come and listen and to him. And people were paying a huge ticket price to come and sit down in the audience and actually listen to him. Hmm. So I thought that these classical musicians are the ones who are actually breaking cultural barriers. I've seen a couple of Pandit Vishwamohanbhat's concerts in America. Again, people from every demographic, people from every ethnicity are basically enjoying his concerts. Same thing with Aman and Ayan. They're also doing a fantastic job. Hmm. So basically, I believe that uh, it is the Indian classical musicians who are who are the fa flag bearers when it comes to spreading our Indian culture and our traditions because they are doing such a good job of doing that. Where do you find satisfaction playing to an audience or when you're creating music in a studio? Where do you find that that oh, I've reached that pinnacle of creativity? I think both of them go hand in hand. Uh, uh, you know, I love the creative process working in the studio and creating my music. I just love that working with musicians and hmm. and building up something from nothing to hmm. building up something that is uh, that I find completely amazing because at the end of the day, I will never put out anything that I myself do not find amazing. Hmm. So, uh, so that satisfaction of, of creating something that I feel that, wow, this is something that I would love listening to. But at the same time, playing it in front of an audience where you get the appreciation and that feedback almost instant, instantaneously, uh, that is a feeling that is unparalleled. Okay. You know, of getting the audience to groove to what you're doing and to appreciate it, seeing them smile in the audience, uh, hear them clapping at the end of the piece of music. Uh, that is an unparalleled experience. But that could have not happened if I did not work hard in the studio in the first True. place. Tell me about Winds of Samsara. Like, uh, what did it mean? You're a young man uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi wouldn't have had that much of an impact on your psyche as a growing person. Nelson Mandela wouldn't have happened. South Africa became free towards the end. Uh, I mean, when you were still probably a teenager yeah. or something. And living in Bangalore, you probably not impacted by either of the yeah. two men. Then you bring out this music, which is about that, that period or those two individuals or the impact of those two individuals on this millions and billions of people. Uh, around the world, not just in India or in South Africa. Tell me about that experience. So, Winds uh, uh, of Samsara, so there's this uh, amazing South African flute player, a gentleman called Walter Kellerman. I was a huge fan of his music. He's a huge fan of my music and we decided that let's work together. So we met in Los Angeles and we were discussing about ways we could work with each other and there was a huge coincidence that came about that I was just uh, finishing 
uh, not yet finished, but I was just finishing off an instrumental piece which I, uh, which I was creating, which was inspired by the ideals of peace and tolerance by Mahatma Gandhi. And he had uh, the coincidence was that he was just finishing a piece of music, uh, which was about his father of the nation, that is uh, Nelson. Nelson Mandela. And we realized there's a whole lot of cross pollination over here because, as we all know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi spent his formative years in South Africa and. Uh, Nelson Mandela was heavily inspired by the non-violence movement by Mahatma Gandhi. So we decided this is how we'll work with each other. You send me your South African music, I'll add, it, add some Indianness to it. I'll send you my Indian music, you add some South Africanness to it. And we worked for about two, two and a half years, learned a lot about these two uh, gentlemen and uh, learned a lot about uh, what they meant to the world, uh, what their ideologies were, um, uh, what they stood for as world leaders. And uh, we created this album. It took us about two, two and a half years. And that was Windows of Samsara. Okay. Um, tell me what it is. Uh, you've you worked with so many masters yeah. of music. Do you get overawed at some point of time? Of course, you've got uh, a fabulous uh, track record of your own. But do you get overawed? And have you uh, met somebody and said, Oh my God, I've learned so much today. No, true. Like when it comes to musicians, Stuart Copeland would be the best example. Because I grew up with posters of him on my wall and... You know, and completely revered his music, revered his work with the police, the band, the band that he formed. So uh, the thing is that uh, for me, working with him on Divine Tides, the album that won us two Grammy Awards, um, that was quite a magical experience because it was sort of like a masterclass of sorts. Because right up until then, I was in complete control of my music, complete control where I'm the decision maker mm. and, you know, and I'm mm. uh, everything is like, you know, whatever, however I want it to be. But now I'm working with a very senior person. Mm. So I have to learn from this person. And I'm collaborating with this person. So I cannot like demand things from this person, you know. So I made a very strong commitment to myself that if he asks for a change or if he does something differently than what I thought it should be done with, I would keep quiet about it. And I would keep quiet about it for two weeks. Okay. And at the end of two weeks, after I've lived with it, if I still feel that, uh, you know, that uh, this is not the way it should be, then I will voice my opinion. And this happened so many times over the course of making the album that he would tell me to do something or he would play something and I'd be like, that does not work at all. It's not working for the track at all. And I would live with it for two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, I would realize that, wow, thank God I do not say anything about it. Okay. It just works. Because sometimes you yourself are so married to your own ideas huh. that, uh, that, you know, that the ego within you uh, prevents you from thinking that another perspective actually works. Huh. Or you feel that you are right and uh, and you fall in love with your own ideas. So what's this new thing that you're doing, Beyond Borders? So Beyond Borders is basically Police Beyond Borders. It's a new album that we've just finished. And the album is going to be releasing in a week's time. So it's an album that what we've done is that, uh, uh, of course, I've grown up listening to the songs of the police. Which this was is Stuart, also with Stuart Copeland. With Stuart, correct. Hmm. I've grown up listening to the songs of the police, songs like Every Breath You Take and songs Every like... Every Move You Make, yes, we've all grown with yeah, that. Yeah, that Message in a Bottle and Roxanne. Yes. So all these famous songs that Stuart's band has created. Yeah, and uh, of course Stuart uh, has created these songs and I've grown up listening to these songs in my childhood so what we did is that we took these songs Stuart arranged them for symphony orchestra and we recorded these songs with uh, in Dublin with the Dublin Symphony Orchestra and then after that what we did was that we took every single song and we got uh, a, a singer or an ensemble or a choir in a different country to sing it in their own language. Uh -huh. So like, for example, Every Breath You Take is sung in Zulu by the Soweto Gospel Choir. We have uh, Message in a Bottle sung by Salim Suleiman in Hindi. We have got Murder by Namas sung by Shankar Mahadevan in Hindi. We have Tea in Sahara sung by Sijuan, who's the biggest star in China, singing it in Mandarin. Then we have Serge Tankian from Armenia 
very famous guy, uh, lead singer of System of a Down, one of the greatest bands of today's times. He sung a song in Armenian. So we have all of these different languages, and so we've taken the police songs and we've reinterpreted these songs for a global audience yeah. to showcase that music is not just uh, about language and about lyrics, but it's about the musicality of the of the words itself, what we just spoke about. And music is a true unifying force. And Beyond Borders, as the name And that's suggests. why the name of the album is Beyond Borders. Okay. Uh, so, as I'm winding up, I'm going to ask you one question which I've asked many musicians about spirituality. Yes. And... Um, whether that is important uh, for musicians to have that spiritual connection in some form or the other. Yeah. Do you need a guru uh, for that? Do you need... Uh, how, how? What is your spiritual path been? So full disclosure, I'm a, when it comes to religion, when it comes to mindsets and when it comes to my philosophy, I'm a very, very proud Hindu. But at the same time, I'm an, I'm an atheist. Hmm. Because atheism is very much within Hinduism. Correct. So I absolutely love and I follow the Gita, I follow the Vedas because I believe it's a very, very good standard of living your life and it's a very good standard of living in coexistence with the environment, living in collaboration with the environment and making this world a better place not just for us and not just for us human beings but for everyone, everything and every species. Hmm. But at the same time, I'm an atheist and uh, I myself, um, I'm not a spiritual person even though a lot of people feel that my music is spiritual. What I believe spirituality is, in my mind, is that sometimes we look at a sunset, which is absolutely beautiful and it's overwhelmingly beautiful. Or you listen to a beautiful piece of music. Like, for example, when you listen to, let's say, a beautiful uh, uh, piece of Hindustani classical music, a beautiful uh, rag yeah. played by, let's say, Pandit Ravi Shankar, it sort of transports you to a different world. Yeah. And your brain cannot fathom how beautiful this is because your primitive brain uh, cannot uh, uh, cannot fully understand the beauty of that music. So then it immediately attributes it to a higher plane. Some divinity somewhere. Some divinity somewhere it yeah. attributes it to because you just yeah. can't understand the beauty of it and the overwhelming nature of it. Many times I listen to a piece of music and I get tears in my eyes. Yeah. And it's not that I'm sad. It's not that I'm happy. But that music was so overwhelming. The power of that music was so overwhelming that it brings tears into my eyes. True. Sometimes when I'm on a beach and I look at a beautiful sunset, again, I get tears in my eyes. I'm not happy. I'm not sad. Why do I get tears in my eyes? Because my brain just can't understand the beauty of this. So that is what I believe that sometimes some uh, few things are so beautiful that you do not understand the beauty of it and you attribute it to a higher plane and that is what I believe is spirituality. So when somebody tells me that they had a spiritual connect with my music, I believe that, okay, I've been successful because yeah. I've had that overwhelming power over that person through my music and I'm like, wow, mission it's successful. Like, you know, I once went for a dance performance by this uh, um, very eminent dancer called Dr. Padma Subramanyam. Of course. You've heard of her. Yeah. And uh, she was doing a, a, a number in which, uh, you know, she looks at uh, like uh, Krishna coming down, yeah. you know, from, from the sky, she's coming Correct. down. Correct. And the way she was emoting... I saw in the audience people looking up. Do you understand? It's yeah. like they actually thought that Krishna is coming yeah. down because her emotions were so much. And that is a spiritual experience. There's nothing but a spiritual, spiritual experience. experience. And then I attended a concert once of uh, Dr. Rajkumar. Now, yeah. he's, a, he's a film person. Yes, he's yes. an actor. Correct. But he was such a fabulous singer. Correct. I understand Kannada, but I don't understand Kannada to that extent Correct. that I can understand words, lyrics. If given context, much. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know spoken Kannada, Correct. but I don't understand that 
that pure kannada which i is, understand yeah. yeah but when he was singing he, and he was it was a devotional song and i was just i was just a student for me yeah. god and divinity and spiritualism wasn't part of my existence but when he was singing it was literally i felt you know transported to another level and when i discussed it with my brother who is like a pink floyd and uh, you know you yeah. uh, and he was like are you mad why would you feel that like you know i was like no i did i don't know what it was but i did and i must have been 8 or 10 years old or yeah. something like that when i said so that's when i felt that yes performing arts uh, some people might demean it but there is a connection to spirituality absolutely absolutely because the thing is that art is uh, art is something that is unquantifiable you cannot quantify art you cannot quantify as to what it does to us as a person uh, it is more of an emotional connect because i uh, I mean that if you do not emotionally connect with a piece of art, you can never love it. Hmm. So it, it can happen even with a painting. It can happen with a, even a photograph. It can happen with music. It can happen with film. It can happen with so many other things. You know. Hmm. So, so I believe that yeah, that's what uh, a successful artist is the one who's had that emotional connect and that spiritual connect with. Somebody. I also ask people about physical and mental well-being in all my podcasts because I think to. to create something you need to have both correct uh, how important is it for you uh, and how do you detoxify yourself from all the the messaging that comes in via social media and i i remember one tweet of yours became very viral when you landed in uh, india and you said that this is not the way you know <laughs> yeah and you got there was a lot of blowback yeah and huge blowback yeah yeah so i'm sure like many of us like lesser mortals also get a lot of it <laughs> how do you cope with that i mean i'm still learning <laughs> so i guess a short answer to that uh, question would be that uh, it's very difficult to uh, to stay away from all of that because the thing is that there's so much of stuff thrown at us on a daily basis yeah. there's so much of material many times when i'm sleeping i go on to instagram and then i'm on an endless scroll it off <laughs> of watching all these short videos it becomes addictive especially these short cooking videos that people have no? <laughs> like you know like uh, or these street food videos so that's your punjabi in you yeah so that i'm just watching that and then at about 2 o'clock at night when i'm going to sleep i'm like watching that and then suddenly i start feeling hungry you know after watching all of that So again like you know as i said short answer to your question i have not figured out how to do it so if you figure it out then teach me how <laughs> <laughs> Okay i'm going to i'm going to ask you to taste that mysore pak yeah, yeah. right and uh, since you're a bangalorean i'm going to ask you that this people who come on social media oh. and say that mysore pak is tamilian oh. or kannadiga what do you think is definitely kannadiga it's mysore pak <laughs> so, and it's and this is a very good example of it So there you are. So viewers, listeners, we have a Grammy winner, tr- three-time Grammy winner, who certified that Mysore Park is Kannada. So then that debate is. Oh, I had Vikram Sampath on the show, huh. and I made him say that to all the show. So, but of course, I haven't bullied you. I just asked you to. No, no, it's definitely Kannada. Like the whole debate of Rasgullas, right? Right. <laughs> Odia or Bengali. Or Bengali. Right. right and uh, is is food important to you in life is 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 that like uh, no i love your... eating food i love food okay but i've got just few things that i like and i don't experiment much okay like for example i like um, let's say i like i like paneer butter masala okay so that's my favorite dish 
so when whichever restaurant for me the experimenting is eating paneer butter masala from multiple restaurants but you're a bangalorean how can paneer butter masala be no, your no, that's the thing you know and and, uh, and uh, probably uh, you know it's going to be a controversial statement <laughs> that i'm going to make but the the darshan is in bangalore yeah. that is the places which normally serve dosas and uh, vadas and all of that stuff they make the best paneer butter masala even better than yes, the one yes i know because they, it's nice and spicy they put onions in it they put beautiful masalas into it so whenever uh, for my favorite paneer butter masala is the paneer butter masala that is made in in karnataka darshinis i don't want to disagree <laughs> with you i want you to say that it is benne masala dosa or something like that that you no, like i love that also i love like, that also and you come on and you say that in darshini you are having paneer but yeah i know i know what you mean yeah. but and also i think uh, it will strike a chord in many expat indians for whom you know when when they connect with india yeah. it's with the food and it's with the music correct right like your dad yes you know lived in myanmar and went and lived in north carolina yeah. but had mohammad rafi and yeah you know so your music bridges that and it's without borders like yes. i'm finding so many metaphors here i know i know Lincoln. But yeah, but uh, uh, but yeah, that's what. Whatever it is, uh, my music is always Indian. That's you, what. I have to ask you yeah. this: You travel, you've performed in what more than thirty countries or something like that? Yeah, easily. Now it's more. Now it's close to forty actually. Now. Do you travel with Indian food? Do you or do you find Indian food? Seek out Indian food wherever you are. Uh, I seek out Indian food, but uh, if I'm travel, if I'm in a city which is very rare, which I if I'm in a city for more than two days. because uh, i think on the third or fourth days when i start missing indian food <laughs> and then i have to seek it out but in some european countries where they are completely snowed in like countries like poland hmm. there they cannot grow vegetables uh, during the winter time okay so they have to have frozen vegetables which they have to cook later on so the indian food isn't that great because they have to use frozen vegetables but nevertheless even then you know you i i still i i still eat it because uh, and of course indian restaurants are in every city everywhere in the world yeah so when fans come to you what do they ask the first thing that they ask you is like uh, play this music for us play this bollywood song or kannada song when they come up to you what do they ask you uh in what context like when they come in in a live concert when they come to you uh after the show or before the show oh. do they have requests when they ask you for something oh but uh, the thing is that my shows i only play my own music at my yeah, shows correct. so it's only my so the requests uh, come from my repertoire of music okay so, so you're not you're not burdened with that thing that you no no i'm not to... burdened with that at all because uh, it, yeah. uh, for me my audiences are very clear when they come for my shows that yeah. that uh, the only music that i play is basically my And own also, compositions also uh, you mentioned about uh about how after your meeting with mr modi um you know it just changed your perspective as to what all the impact that you can have with your music Correct. and what you want to do in life uh is there anybody else that like like mr modi that you've met <coughs> who had that impact on you in life that you said okay this is how i want my music to be it's a difficult question to ask but i think uh, that has had the i think uh, that has had the singularly large uh, largest impact on me okay. you know meeting prime minister modi and his appreciation for my music and his appreciation for what i was doing uh, because you know it it sort of gave purpose to my music and it gave purpose to my life and even though that was something that i wanted to do it, it, uh, it and it was on the back of my mind that you know that i should stop all forms of commercial music and i should utilize the power of music because at the end of the day why do these big brands use music for their jingles and commercials they use music because they realize that music is a very powerful language for communication hmm. you know so much so that they're ready to spend a few thousand dollars on me to actually create a piece of music and they're ready to spend a few million dollars to actually air that music on television hmm. and radio 
because they understand that music will be able to sell their product better than a talking commercial or something like that. Hmm. So I've always felt that you know that the the power of music should always be harnessed for good. Hmm. And uh, but I needed that push. Hmm. And that meeting with Prime Minister Modi pushed me in the right direction that uh, you know that just jump into it because sometimes you feel like, okay I should transition into this. But then he encouraged me to go into the deep end of the swimming pool, you know, and jump hmm. in and figure out your way out, you know, and just stop all forms of commercial music and you know and create music for the better good do you feel fulfilled with that uh, extremely fulfilled okay. i i think uh, best decision i've ever made in my life because uh, right now my music has got a purpose my life has got a purpose and and um, uh, right now my passions are completely uh, you know connected because i was i was an environmentalist and a musician now both these things have come together as one and uh, i just want to show this uh, to my viewers this is what i've been presented and it's the uh, 15th august is the freedom uh, week that we are going through so i'm going to wear this with great sense of pride uh, and honor and thank you so much for being part of the podcast and wishing you all the success from all of us here at ani no it's been an absolute honor to be on your podcast i've been watching it forever and uh, it's great uh, to be sitting down in front of you and just experience this room that i've been seeing on youtube for so long <laughs> thank you so much thank you, thank so you. Much. all the best thank you so it's decided then the world renowned musician has absolutely decided as to where the origins of the mysore pak are Karnataka. That's all in this episode. Thank you for watching or listening in to ANI podcast with Smita Prakash. Namaste, Jai Hind.